Welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Charlotte. On this podcast, we have honest, explicit, wholesome conversations about sex, pleasure, joy, and connection. Come on over to pleasuremechanics.com where you will find 15 plus years of resources we have lovingly created so you can experience more pleasure, joy, and connection on your own terms. You can also find our complete podcast archive sorted by topic in our sex index. Or you can explore our complete suite of online courses when you're ready to up-level your sexual skills or go on your next erotic adventure with us by your side. If you're new to the show, be sure to come over to pleasuremechanics.com free to get started with our free online course so we can send you our best resources right away. On today's episode, we are joined by therapist and author Kate Laurie, who is here to talk about how to explore and navigate being in a non-monogamous relationship. No matter what your relationship structure is, whether you're single, partnered in a monogamous relationship, or in some form of an open relationship, I hope there is something here for you in the ideas and practices offered within this podcast that can support you in expanding the experience of love, care, and connection in your life. All right, let us dive into a conversation about opening deeply. Welcome to Speaking of Sex. Can you please introduce yourself and the work you do in the world? Absolutely. I'm a sex positive licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty in non-monogamous kink, LGBTQ and sex worker communities. And I'm the author of Open Deeply, a guide to building conscious, compassionate, open relationships. Uh, In addition to being a licensed MFT, I also have an MBA and I'm a registered art therapist. Um, I'm a certified sex educator and an EMDR certified therapist with additional training in the trauma resiliency model for the treatment of trauma. I'm a co-host on the sex positive podcast, Open Deeply with Sunny Megatron. And the latest thing I've brought into this world is my book. Uh, Over the years, I've learned from all the greatest relationship therapists across the globe. I've taken all of that knowledge and funneled it through a non-monogamous lens. I've blended the knowledge of all the great relationship therapists with the knowledge from the great trauma therapists. Once you see how these two fields converge, you'll realize that this has always been the missing link all along. So my book does just that. It explains how blending cutting edge neurobiology and form grounding skills, somatic tracking and mindfulness, which all comes from the school of thought that Uh, from trauma and effectively blends that with communication skills. And you'll see how that significantly enhances the health of any non-monogamous relationship. And that blending those two is actually the secret to loving well. Mm, That is beautiful. So if with all this language, why did you center the word open in your book title? First off, I think of open as uh, an umbrella term similar to consensual non-monogamy. I know some people define open different ways, but that's the way I think of it is, you know, an open relationship is similar to a consensual non-monogamous relationship. They're open, they're, they're umbrella terms. And underneath that are, you know, swing lifestyle, polyamory, and a million hybrids in between. Um, but the thing that I love about the phrase open deeply is it can have multiple meanings. The second meaning refers how our body responds to love and safety. It comes from my knowledge gained from being a trauma therapist. When we feel safe, know how to heal or manage our past attachment injuries and connect to love in any of its many forms in a conscious and compassionate way, uh, we, as the book is entitled, open deeply. Mm -hmm. Our body opens up like a flower. We we relax, knots in our body dissipate. People often report to me a warmth in in their gut or in their heart. And my book is designed to help people open deeply in their non monogamous relationship, but also in their relationship with themselves. And any relationship 
in their lives. Mm. And you give us so many skills and tools and practices, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But as we're still sort of introducing this, I'd love to hear what some of the most common identifiers folks are using to define these different relational spaces. So if you could just give us a little primer of like, what is ethical non-monogamy versus polyamory, relationship anarchy, and then open relationships. So how sure. do you see those as different? Okay. Well, you know, most of my clients still use the term ethical non-monogamy. And I think that term probably was in response to the general public believing that non-monogamy was just cheaters and denial. The term stresses the idea that although multiple partners are involved, all is above board and it's all consensual. But the term became problematic when we realized that people within any relationship model can behave unethically and ethics are subjective. And so academics have leaned towards using the term consensual non-monogamy, focusing on the key piece consent. Um, And the term open is sometimes defined different ways. I use it as an umbrella term Uh, Just like ethical non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy are also umbrella terms uh, to describe a non-monogamous relationship that is consensual. Um, But others define it as a relationship in which one or more partners have consensually agreed to be romantically or sexually involved with people outside of the relationship. And then if we zoom down to thinking about the swing lifestyle, the way I would nutshell it is folks in the swing lifestyle, if they are a quintessential swinger um, or lifestyler, they tend to be emotionally monogamous, but they're sexually non-monogamous. And then within polyamory, they tend to be both sexually and romantically non-monogamous, although we have to keep in mind that some folks that are polyam are asexual, you know, but love is on board in a way that, you know, swing lifestylers try and create all these boundaries to keep love from happening. They, they just want to share adventures with their partner and they don't uh, want it to get so complicated as to test love potentially getting on board. So they tend to play together. Sometimes they play apart. Anyway, it gets complicated these days. This is one reason that I think within non-monogamy, all of these kind of binaries, like you're either a swing lifestyler or, or you're a poly person, it's all starting to break down where you see people that are sometimes playing together and sometimes playing separately and doing all these things that are hybrids of the swing lifestyle and poly. So just like uh, we're becoming more gender fluid, we're also becoming more relationship fluid And I think just like when you see, uh, when you talk to uh, gay couples or people in gay relationships, whether it's a triad or a couple or whatever, when they are talking to me, they don't use any of this terminology. They just describe what they're doing. And I have the feeling that, you know, people that are more heterosexual, what have you, if things keep going in a healthy way, we will move towards being more fluid. And a lot of these terms that we use will just break down. That totally makes sense. And yeah, there are so many nuances here. Um, And it is so valuable for us each to get clear about what are the um, individual nuances that we care about and want to center in our relational styles. Um, so what do you think is most important for people to get specific about, um, as they figure out their own relational style? Well, honestly, when a couple or triad or whatever your relationship formation, uh, when, when all you come to like, say a party and there's all kinds of different people there, I think using identifiers, like we're swingers or we're polyam, you know, what have you actually can confuse things because people always tell themselves a story of what that means. And the way people actually operate is often different than the story in their head. So I always encourage people and, you know, you can say what your identifier is, but please follow it up with like saying what your practices are or on the flip side, if you're trying to figure out how a, a particular person rolls, instead of saying, how do you identify, you know, you might want to ask them if they are willing to share 
what are some of their practices? What are some of their boundaries and rules? And although that's more long-winded, you're more likely to get an answer that serves you well rather than confuses you and could potentially uh, create some social uh, missteps. You know, so within the couple, that's a whole, or the, or the triad or whatever the configuration is. Uh, again, I would encourage them to just uh, borrow from relationship anarchy, which I forgot to explain to you. Uh, let's pause and maybe talk about relationship anarchy. So relationship anarchy is, uh, oftentimes really hard for people to understand. In fact, I've had a lot of sex educators say, it took me a long time to wrap my head around what relationship anarchy actually is. But, and so this is my definition and I'd encourage anyone curious to do your own research because it is a bit complicated. But I think of relationship anarchists is uh, their intention is to break down all this terminology. One, uh, they, uh, don't really uh, like social constructs as much. So they're breaking and they tend to steer away from gender definers like girlfriend, boyfriend, that sort of thing. They have a tendency to break all of that down and now let's build something new up. And you can like Google uh, the word uh, relationship anarchy smorgasbord and you'll find these nice little maps to help you rebuild something once you've broken down the social constructs and you'll see that like with any relationship you have you can sit there and look from the menu and be like oh i think what we want in this particular relationship is friendship and emotional support or maybe we'll choose kink and uh power exchange and communication as our things from the menu that we enjoy. And it can change and shift from day to day, but it's more about choosing consciously the things that you want in your relationship and not feeling married <laughs> to what society says you're supposed to be. So, um, you know, so now that I've said that, going back to the question of what identifiers two people should use in a relationship, I think kind of borrowing from relationship anarchy is a, a good way to go. Instead of using identifiers, really talk about uh, these different, you know, different choices from the menu. Like, what do you want? Are you kinky? Like, what, what kind of power dynamics are fun for you, if any? like really unpack and describe rather than using a whole bunch of labels. That's what I would, I would say. Thank you. And there's so many options for how we can be in relationship and how we can shape our relationships. And it's invigorating and interesting, but does involve quite a bit of, of looking at our relationship and looking at how we show up in relationships. And sort of one thing I really noticed is how deeply rooted monogamous culture and couples culture is. Um, and it's really taken over a lot of how we feel and relate and love. Um, and what are some of the steps that we can all take to start rooting out what is a cultural bias versus our own individual preferences and relational styles? Well, first off, I, I just want to reaffirm kind of what you're saying. I, I think dominator culture very much shows up within non-monogamy as well. It can show up as couples privilege, uh, ownership language, or a partner that has certain narcissistic traits like entitlement um, and being what I call an overtaker along with manipulation and a lack of empathy. Those are, you know, some signs that there is some internalized dominator culture in, in your body or in your relationship. And I think if you intentionally want to break some of that down, because let's face it, we've all been conditioned. If you live in the United States from the time you're a little munchkin, you were conditioned uh, with our culture. I mean, this runs deep and it's mm -hmm. all day long everywhere. So if you want to get the dominator culture out of your system, it's literally like almost breaking free from a cult and you have to actively retrain your brain to break free from dominator culture. And I think part of that is, is to make the right friends. 
Uh, some people will encourage and reward ignorance and other people will be glad to help you become more aware. Uh, I think educating yourself, making sure that you choose podcasts that help you break free from this uh, constant stream of information that skews you towards dominator culture. There's, I think podcasts are the most beautiful place to go because, you know, like some of the, our social media sites have terms of service that block free speech and podcasts is one of the few remaining domains where you can retrain your brain. And of course, books and podcasts question everything, ask others for constructive feedback and note, um, and this is something I've experienced in my own life. The more you wake up, cause let's face it, it's a lifelong journey and you can wake up in a million different ways. The more you wake up, the more you have to up your, game in terms of coping skills in equal measure, because if you wake up, but you don't have your coping skills down, you can feel like a raw nerve. Mm. You have to, it's like leveling up in a video game. There's all these rewards that come from the next level of the video game. But if you don't have the coping skills and the skills to stay at that level of the video game or move up, you will get kicked back down to the previous level of the video game. I so appreciate what you're saying about um, unlearning cultural scripts and how it's essential that we do this all the time in all different ways. Um, and then we want to rebuild new pathways of connection and being in relationship. One of the things I think we don't talk about in our culture is how common open love actually is. Like parents easily love more than one child families get divorced and remarried and kids love multiple sets of step parents and grandparents, for example. And we don't seem to worry too much about that as a culture with all these adapting family models. Um, so why do you think romantic and sexual love is treated as this anomaly where one is the only right number? You know, so this goes a little bit outside of my scope of being a psychotherapist. And it gets a little bit more into sociology and what I'm about to say, I can't necessarily prove. This is just what I believe. I believe it goes back to dominator culture. You know, uh, bell hooks talks a little bit about this. So I think with dominator culture, certain leaders, like you could choose somebody like Hitler or Putin, but it doesn't have to be that extreme. Almost instinctually on an unconscious level, historically and globally have known that if they disconnect us to the main things that resource us like nature and sex, and you strip us of all the things that ground us, which those are two main portals to spirituality, to love, to, to psychological health. If you strip those things and then, replace it with shame, make people think that nature is actually evil, you know, like they equate pagan with evil, you know, even though I don't. Um, if you strip people of all their resources and then instill shame for connecting to any of those resources. Now, what I've noticed in my private practice is when someone comes in and they are riddled with shame, not only are they experiencing sexual shame, but they do not trust their internal compass. And then they have to look to an outside source like traditional religion, like a conservative political leader for guidance. And then those uh, conservative leaders that wish to dominate can puppeteer. And they've learned how to do that on a mass level with society. And so when you cut those strings and you return to connecting to nature and sexuality and, and you don't think your body is evil, but you connect to your body and realize that, that you need to connect to all of that stuff in a whole, then you no longer need all of that stuff, which is the thing that they are worried about the most. Then you can connect to sex and what is your truth and to love and and there's a whole new journey you go on. And that is what these figures are most scared of. And so, yeah, sex and sex educators that lean towards feminism, they are always under threat because they, and they're always attacked because they are the biggest threat 
to the status quo and to dominate our culture. Whew. Let's take that in. So when we are able to undo cultural scripts about shame and when we are able to find ways to connect deeply with ourselves, with nature, with our sexuality, we are accessing power that can fuel us. Um, and it gives us access to so much connection and love. And Yeah, I, I think that most people have no idea of their human potential. It's like what we're capable of is so gorgeous. I couldn't agree more. And I feel like part of our role is to keep unpacking and relearning. Um, and it is, there is an infinite amount, infinite amount of pleasure and connection and joy that we can access uh, alone and together in this world. Um, and that is absolutely what we're up to. Let us take a minute and thank our sponsor. No matter who you are in relationship with or what kind of sex you're having, having lube by your bedside is essential. That's why we partnered with uberlube.com to share with you our favorite silicone lubricant. Uberlube is a luxurious, high-grade silicone lubricant made from clean, body-friendly ingredients. It's just silicone with a little vitamin E. The vitamin E leaves a velvety finish that actually moisturizes the skin. Uberlube is body safe. It is free of extra additives like parabens, preservatives, and petrochemicals. It stays on the surface of your skin and does not enter your bloodstream like water-based lube. Uberlube is latex compatible, so it's safe and effective to use with condoms, and there's no scent or flavor. Right now, Uberlube is offering Speaking of Sex listeners a special offer, 10% off and free shipping when you use the code PLEASURE at uberlube.com. That's 10% off and free shipping. Just use the code PLEASURE at uberlube.com. That's U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E.com, uberlube.com. Thank you to Uberlube for sponsoring this podcast. You'll find links in the show notes. And now back to the interview about opening deeply. One of the things we talk about a lot on this podcast is we can build our capacity to experience and feel pleasure and love. And um, I love how you're talking about how we can build our capacity to give and receive love um, and experience deeper levels of intimacy through building positive affect tolerance. So can you tell us what that is and how we can practice that? Yes, absolutely. First off, I just have to say that even a lot of therapists don't know the term positive affect tolerance. So for a listener out there, if you're thinking, I have never heard that term, just, just know that you're not alone. Um, there's a book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And he, all through that book, he is talking about positive affect tolerance, but he uses terms like upper limiting. He uses different words, but he's talking about the same thing. Uh, and any book that any person that I've re uh, referred to that book is, is just blown away. So that's a very powerful book. If you want to continue your education solely on positive affect tolerance, that's a great book to read. Mm -hmm. With that said, uh, positive affect tolerance is basically your tolerance, your ability to take in the yumminess of life, to help you understand that. Because a lot of people might say, well, why would I have to build a tolerance for experiencing the good things? Well, let me tell you, people do. Um, there are people that if you compliment them, it feels like an itchy sweater that they want to get off of their body and throw across the room. The more you have a dramatic backstory, the more your positive affect tolerance might be in the pooper. But you can build your positive affect tolerance like you build a muscle in the gym. And so, you know, and oh, by the way, your positive affect tolerance might be really strong in one area, like maybe professionally. If somebody tells you that you are an amazing uh, worker and or uh, you're amazing in your profession, that might be easy for you. But having your partner gaze into your eyes at length, you, you might get wriggly in 30 seconds, right? So it's not an across the board thing. Wherever you find that your positive affect tolerance is weak, you can lean into that gently 
and slowly build it up. For, for me, when I uh, go to Agape Center here in LA, and when I first went in there and they when you first go in there and they all turn around and they welcome you and the amount of love you experience there, I started to cry in a good way. I was not used to a you know group love in that capacity. <laughs> Maybe some other types of group love, but not that one. <laughs> uh, and, and so I literally go back there to work on my positive affect tolerance in that realm. So if we go to non-monogamy, like how might this affect our non-monogamous relationship in the same? So on a personal level, if, uh, you know, if, if our partner is loving us in a way that we don't have the muscle for, we may sabotage, we may withdraw, um, we may start a fight, right? And not even know why, again, unconscious reactive stuff. But the more we consciously start tracking our positive affect tolerance, the more we can build it. How else could this show up? Say we are in a group sex situation and it is an amazing configuration of, you know, four people on a bed and say they decide to uh, play princess, queen or king and you get to be the focus where you're getting a six person massage or something like that. If you don't have the positive affect tolerance, you may kick that yummy moment away. Oh, I'm all of a sudden thirsty. I have to go to the bathroom. Some excuse, and you may not even consciously realize why you just cut short something so yummy and wonderful. And I think people do that just with one other person too, right? Like building this capacity benefits all of us. And how do we, so how do we do that specifically? We literally, like when someone gives us a compliment, we just practice saying thank you. What are like some yes. of the ways people can actively work on building their capacity? Yeah, I, I think that sometimes it's that's what you just said is the quintessential example that I hear the most. Like, yeah, if you have a hard time accepting a compliment, just say thank you. I would also invite you to track your body. If you a lot of people just live up in your in their heads, if you're tracking your body and noticing when somebody gives you a compliment or they give you a hug and you feel that clenched up thing in your body, step away, you know, like ask yourself, what is that about? Because sometimes it's not that that you don't like it. It's just that they are hitting a positive affect tolerance wall. And we, the, so the first part is awareness. Awareness and tracking your body. And, and then you can, if you have a partner, you can consciously work on this. Like instead of them, if you find some place, like say that it's the eye gaze and you start out just being able to gaze into their eyes for 30 seconds before you get wriggly, can you make an agreement with your partner to try and expand that to a minute and slowly build it up in a comfortable way? You know, I think it's it's about not pushing through your boundaries, but gently uh, expanding your boundaries. Like again, the gym metaphor, if you push through your boundaries too fast at the gym, you will throw out your back, you will pull a muscle. Same thing with this. If you push your positive affect tolerance too quickly, you could end up saying yes to something that's not a true yes. and that can cause even a PTSD response. You know, you want to do this gently and, and, you know, lean into it in different capacities, depending on what area you're trying to build your positive affect tolerance in. Does Perfect. that answer your yeah, question? Absolutely. I love that. Just like gentle expansion um, of what is possible for yourself so that you can slowly yeah. over time, just be able to receive more um, or yes. give more depending yeah, and, and honest communication uh, with your partner or partners. I think that's key. If you don't feel like you have a voice, then you might need to back up and work on that before you start to gently expanding your positive affect tolerance. Because if you don't have enough of a voice to say, okay, this is too much, mm -hmm. then again, you could end up uh, pushing yourself to do things you're not ready for. And that's one of the things you talk about really beautifully in the book is um, using this internal compass where you are tracking all sorts of things going on in your body. And I'm, I feel like that is useful for all people, whether they're in a non-monogamous relationship or a different kind of relationship structure. Can you just tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about your tracking, like mm -hmm. your internal compass? Well, yeah. 
Yeah, uh, just on a side, you know, there's some people that are blessed enough to be in non-monogamous relationship or relationships where they're with a partner with emotional intelligence that's kind and compassionate and self-aware. But there's a lot of us that might be in a relationship with someone with narcissistic traits or someone who's trying to push us through things that we're not ready for. And when that's coupled with, within non-monogamy, there's certain groups that heavily believe, you know, we shouldn't control another person, right? And so they're, which is understandable. We do not own another person. I agree with that. But at the same time, if you're leaning on this idea that we shouldn't control another person so much so that you are saying yes to things that you are not ready for, again, you can end up traumatizing yourself. So there has to be some kind of balance between not wanting to control our partner and also recognizing what we're ready for and doing our own self-care. So, you know, uh, I, I think if I were to talk about one piece of this, uh, you know, in a relationship, sometimes we get triggered. Uh, a lot of times we don't get triggered. A lot of times our attachment injuries do not light up until we truly feel connected to somebody. We move in with them, we get married to them. When we first meet them, a lot of times our attachment injuries don't light up. It's when we have that attachment that the attachment injuries could light up, right? Usually. And so one thing that you can do is when you notice yourself getting triggered, a lot of people think to themselves, oh, I'm just having jealousy or what have you. Uh, but let's go a little bit you know, deeper. Uh, let's give an example. Uh, you know, Sam and Max are at a party and Max is flirting with Jessica all night. Uh, even though it's Sam's birthday and all night there's this flirtation between Max and Jessica, right? And so when Max and Sam go home, they get into this big fight and Max is like, you're trying to control me, blah, blah, blah. And Sam is like, why am I so upset about this? So I always invite people to first ask yourself, what is Max's responsibility or what is, you know, and this is not a blame thing. What is Max's responsibility? What is my Sam's responsibility in this? So on Sam's side, Sam could do an exercise where Sam bridges back, gets in touch with that moment at the party that felt the worst somatically and emotionally. Somatically, I felt tense in my body. My face felt hot. I felt a knot in my throat. I felt left. I felt lonely. Um, you know, Get in touch with all of that. And then once you're connected somatically and emotionally, bridge back, not with your mind, you can turn your mind off, bridge back somatically and emotionally. What pops up? Oh, Sam remembers a time uh, with her sibling. Her sibling was always getting the attention because she was a life of the party. Her parents thought she was hilarious and there was for example, a time at a gas station where she was left at the gas station because her parents were howling, laughing at something her sibling said, and it took them 10 minutes to realize that they had left her. Right. And so this is getting triggered in her body. And that's part of why she got upset at the Max Jessica situation. So that piece is partially her responsibility to either go to a therapist or, you know, practice mindfulness or find some way to soften that injury that is clearly not healed enough. But now let's look at what is Max's responsibility. Perhaps Max, especially since it was Sam's birthday, was being a little disrespectful or unloving. Maybe there could have been a little bit more of a balance between Max's attention to, to Jessica and Sam, you know? And so a lot of times in non-monogamous relationships, um, we really need to look at what each person's responsibility is, not from a place of judgment, but in a place of noticing what work needs to be done. And then with Sam, the somatic piece and the body tracking piece comes into play when, she, when she's trying to figure out what's going on with her. Beautiful. So we're looking at what are external factors um, that are impacting us and what are internal factors that are impacting us. And then we're somatically tracking what we're feeling, what our emotions are, 
and also we're looking at our history and how that has uh, created bigger emotions than we might've expected in that moment. And then we're communicating. Yeah, and the communication piece that you mentioned, um, you know, if we have a compassionate, conscious partner, they're gonna have compassion and some patience for that backstory rather than the reactive unconscious uh, partner who's just like, you're just trying to control me, man, you know, like, I just want to do what I want to do, you know, which you find that a lot. It's like, we can find a middle ground where we can be loving to each other and we can reach our human potential and, and be our truth. Beautiful. Yeah, it is an access to so much information um, as we're bringing in different uh, configurations of people and choices and moments of agency. Like there's so much information to gain um, always in life, but in non-monogamous situations, I think, especially. Um, often when people think about non-monogamy, I think one of the main concerns people have is around jealousy. Um, mm -hmm. And what do you think are some of the other emotions that could be speaking to us um, that we might miss if we are just focusing on thinking that every uncomfortable emotion is just jealousy? Um, and do you have any thoughts about when jealousy does come up, what are some effective ways of working with it? Yeah, for one thing, whenever a client comes in and says they're jealous, the first thing I do is unpack that like you unpack a suitcase. You know, what's inside of your jealousy? Because jealousy is an umbrella emotion. And inside the jealousy is a whole bunch of other emotions. So if you don't unpack it, then you'll never be able to figure out how to work with it. So, um, you know, other emotions that might be going on is envy, which is different than jealousy. Uh, you may feel disrespected. You may, and as far as disrespect goes, people confuse jealousy and disrespect all the time. Common as dirt. Uh, you may be feeling disempowered. You may be experience, experiencing distrust or insecurity um, or emotions associated with fear of loss and abandonment are all examples, you know? Um, and again, when you are realizing that you're feeling some of these things. Well, first, let me ask you, is there a particular emotion that you're curious about? I'd be curious if you could name the difference between envy and uh, jealousy for people. Okay, so uh, envy is more wanting what someone else has. You know, uh, for instance, maybe you have a partner and they go off and they uh, have a group sex situation, you know, experience, and they come back the next morning and they're just glowing and it was amazing. Um, if you're not, if you're just operating in an unconscious reactive way, you might mislabel that is that you're jealous of your partner. But it, if you really look, you know, it, and maybe that's true, but if you were to really track your emotions, sit with it, unpack it, you might notice I'm not really jealous. I'm more envious. I've never had a group sex experience. So it's not that I have a problem with my partner having group sex or feel threatened of losing them. A lot of times jealousy has to do with fearing loss of something you value, whereas envy is more about wanting something that you don't have, like wishing you were taller or wishing that you had a bigger dick or something like that, right? Um, and sometimes it can be something that we can have where we we're like, oh, I didn't realize how much I wanted to experience group sex, okay. You know, I need to put this on my bucket list. I love what you're saying there, just that there's so much information within these emotions. The jealousy can give us access to so much more information. Um, and if we're bringing these tools of like paying attention somatically and watching what the emotions are, we can really create richer relationships um, as we gain more skill in, in feeling and understanding these nuances and then communicating them. Right. I mean, I think if when we experience some kind of uncomfortable feeling, instead of regarding the feeling as the enemy, let's regard it as a friend that's trying to teach us and reveal something. Like if we feel some uncomfortable feeling because our partner is spending time with another person, um, notice what it, you know, maybe they spent a whole day with this person and they got dolled up 
and they were swoony and, and you know, and all this, and you're having all these feelings, maybe it's letting you know that you want a little bit of that. Maybe you're long-term partners and you've kind of been phoning it in because you have three kids and you haven't really made a date where you both doll up and really cherish each other. Maybe that's like an indicator that this is something that you need that you haven't experienced for a while. I love that. Yeah. The emotions as teachers and invitations to be curious about what they're revealing. Yeah. There's so much there. And I think jealousy is a huge emotion people are concerned about in taking on uh, exploration in non-monogamy, but also insecurity is something that I think people worry about feeling or aren't so sure how to deal with do you have any advice about like what's an effective way of dealing with feelings of insecurity yeah i i think with insecurity it matter it depends on what it is right um because i think one step towards dealing with insecurities is to reframe your cognition and how you reframe it depends on what it is so if um if the thing you're insecure of is say your partner uh, has another partner that's more uh, more well-read than you or more muscular or more sexually skilled, that might, you might be able to transmute your insecurity into inspiration because those are all things that you can build. You know, if you got enough time and resources, you can build all of those things. Whereas if it's something that you can't control, like your height or whether or not you have a sexy uh, accent or whether your IQ is so high that you're in Mensa, uh, then if it's those kind of things that you can't control, then maybe self-acceptance coupled with gratitude towards your assets is more in order than inspiration. So I may not have a genius IQ, but I'm a creative genius and you know i can do a mural that just has everybody swooning with its its beauty so i think reframing your cognitions is really important i think sometimes when our partner goes off with other people and we feel insecure uh i think reconnection rituals are really important not just when they go out on a date but on a daily basis it's part of a gratitude practice and if i go off a little tangentially for a moment uh we are wired more for anxiety. If you think about it, it's like, how did our ancestors uh, survive being eaten by the bear? It was the anxious people that survived more. And so it's kind of in our DNA to scan for danger. How does that show up in our relationships? We tend to scan for what's wrong within ourselves and our partner. So we have to develop an active gratitude practice. And luckily what fires together, wires together in the brain. So it may be work at first, it probably will. But if you keep it up, then it will become the new default and it will no longer be work. And so reconnection rituals is part of doing that. You know, whoever is last home, if you live with somebody, uh, you know, put your stuff down, go to the bathroom, but then come back and have a reconnection ritual. So oftentimes people think that means venting about their crappy ass day. Well, that's taking you back. That is not about being in the here and now. A lot of times it is a nonverbal reconnection ritual, like maybe holding each other's face and connecting to your body, noticing what part of your body notices and, and can feel how much you love that person, hold their face and just be like, I love you so much. I'm so grateful for the fact that you always make me laugh. I'm so grateful for the fact that you spoon me in the morning. You know, it might be just having 30 seconds of being present in your body while you connect with your partner. And those kind of rituals can really melt away insecurities. And last I'd say within non-monogamy is creating a safety net. If you're lucky enough to have more than one partner who's caring, then if one partner can't be there for you because they're working an 80 hour a week job or they have another partner, what have you, if you have a safety net of people that love you in different capacities, then if one person can't provide, there's other people that can, and that can really over time melt away insecurities. Hmm. I love that piece that you're including like self-acceptance of who we are and then also bringing in compassion for, for things that we are not. Um, and then building in gratitude and community and 
it feels like those are something that all all people could be focusing on cultivating in our life just to have a richer sense of self and network of care and support um yeah and if i were to just add briefly if you want to expand your awareness on that then self-compassion by kristen neff is a gorgeous book that can help you expand your own self-compassion and melt away insecurities right she's really a leader in the field um it's so valuable and we'll talk more on the podcast about it at some other moment but yes um you also include a really big section in the book about attachment styles and how attachment injuries or traumas can influence our experience of intimate relationships um how do you recommend we look at this axis within ourselves and our relational patterns so let's just first say, regardless of what your attachment style is, it is not set in stone. Again, what fires together, wires together in the brain. So you may start off being an insecure attachment style, but if you work on it, uh, you can move towards being a secure attachment style. Um, so there, if you research uh, these different types, you'll see different things. Uh, it's a bit confusing to Google because some of the styles are related to children, some of them adults, and then there's different thought leaders that use different terminology. I use Diane Poole Heller's model, which is uh, secure attachment. Everybody knows that. That's consistent. You know, that's uh, that person that had the glorious golden childhood where their partner, you know, their parents um, and those who raised them uh made them feel loved and seen they were present love was consistent and they grew up uh feeling like the world has their back when that person goes into non-monogamous relationships it's obvious you know like to me it's obvious that it's going to be way easier for them because they're going into non-monogamy being like this is going to be okay and and my partners will have my back and it's all going to work out you know if you're any other attachment style, then non-monogamy is going to be harder for you. Doesn't mean you can't do it though. So uh, there's also the ambivalent attachment style, which um, you know tends to have higher anxiety uh, due to intermittent reinforcement in childhood. And so the ambivalent style uh, that can show up in a non-monogamous relationship in a couple of different ways. In, in their head, they tend to struggle with anxiety and being chronically dissatisfied. So they're going to be scanning for what's wrong in their non-monogamous relationship. But what you might see is one of two things. The one may look very different than what's going on the inside. This person may seem like may, may be a pleaser, an overgiver. It could be that person that goes into shame spirals thinking that they're bad at polyamory. You know, they may really blame themselves and their partners intermittently um or they can show up instead of being an overgiver that is like saying yes to everything in an, in an effort to be good polyam even when they're not ready for things they may skew in the other way their anxiety may show up with like constantly being overcritical of the situation being anxious about every little thing to the extent that their partner is like, oh my God, you feel so controlling to me. And the person isn't trying to be controlling, they're just trying to manage their anxiety, right? You know, so that's how that can show up. Um, the avoidant is um, sometimes uh, called a withdrawn attachment style, you know, different wording, but that person in their childhood, they had parents or caregivers that were not present for them enough. Uh, and, and so when they grow up, they mirror that they have a tendency to withdraw. Um, Diane he Poole Heller, there's a quote that she says, she says, without intimate nurturance, she's speaking about in childhood, when she says intimate, she just means parent parental love. The limbic system is neurologically starved and does not receive the signals required for building social responses, nor the frontal brain stimulation that develops bonding. So if you have somebody who is a hardcore withdrawn attachment style, they literally may not have the neural connections in their brain that allow them to connect in the way that a secure attachment style can. That is huge. Like it, 
they have to consciously, if they are an extreme with withdrawn attachment style, build this again, like a muscle in the gym, but they can do it, you know? And then the last one I'll just go over quickly is the uh, disorganized type. And they often have some symptoms that are similar to borderline personality disorder symptoms. They oftentimes came from a childhood that had a lot of abuse and neglect. Um, granted, not everybody with a lot of abuse and neglect shows up as disorganized. So it's, I'm not saying that everybody with a, abuse and neglect and uh, ends up being this type. Um, but they tend in a relationship, what they love, what they want most, what they fear most is the same thing. And that's love. And so being in love with them can feel like a, a, a tidal wave that's moving really fast. They come towards you with this huge, yummy love, great sex, all this stuff. And then they can pull away just as hard. They can be disorganized type, can be very chaotic. It doesn't mean that they can't be non-monogamous, although a lot of therapists that come from a non uh, monogamous lens might think that I'm crazy pants for saying that. Uh, what I would say is that you know, a, a monogamous leaning therapist would say a disorganized type or somebody with BPD needs the stability of a monogamous relationship because they need security to heal and they need that consistent love to heal. What I would say is somebody with light BPD symptoms or someone on the low end, a non-monogamous relationship with loving, supportive partners can create a safety net so that if one person is not available, there is another person available. And the same thing can potentially be created where they have that consistent love that they needed. But again, this is a more low-key person on the disorganized type. Someone who's full tilt disorganized, you know, it, it gets a lot harder and maybe harder for them to, uh, to manage. But going back to what you were saying about uh, attachment injuries and, and traumas, I've, I spoke earlier in the example of Sam bridging back and realizing that moment at the gas station, it was what was triggering her anxiety in that moment. Similarly, we can do that. We can track our body and find out what is getting triggered. Um, and we can heal in that way and we can communicate with our partners about those feelings. If you listen to um, Getting the Love You Want, he provides a, a, another framework for why that happens all the time. The more we heal, the more we have a chance to have a corrective experience. And he, he, felt, he feels that even on an unconscious level that humans know that they need corrective experiences from their childhood. And so if you're more unconscious and reactive, you're more likely to choose that person that has the same energy from your childhood, but instead they just re-traumatize you. The more you work towards healing, the more you're going to choose somebody that energetically may mirror your childhood a little bit, but they've worked on themselves. But what we're always trying to aim for is someone that's a little bit more healed than our backstory. And we're trying to have corrective experiences and those corrective experiences uh, that you either provide for yourself or you, or you experience with a partner is what helps you move towards a secure attachment style. Hmm. There's so much there for us to each become aware of in ourselves and then within our relationship um, to try and generate these corrective experiences that you're talking about. So we can, again, have access to more love and connection um, and intimacy Thank you for that sort of primer mm -hmm. on all of the attachment styles. And I'll put a link in the um, show notes page, but we also have a whole other podcast on attachment styles that goes into even more detail. But I think it's valuable for us to always be hearing about it to, to try and unpack what we can learn for ourselves about our own styles. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about how all these attachment styles impact non-monogamous relationships because that dialogue isn't out there very much at all. Right. You know, I mean, you got Polly Secure that, that was recently put out. Um, and then my book talks about it as well. So that's a whole new journey that I'm sure different authors, uh, you know, there'll be more books that talk about how attachment style 
how they impact non-monogamous relationships. And that's so key because it's actually non-monogamous relationships in which our attachment injuries get poked way more than in monogamous relationships just because there's other people involved. So it's something that's so important to look at and have information about. Um, Absolutely crucial. Is there anything else you want to share? I know there's so much more and there's such depth and richness in your book and you cover so much. Um, and I know we've, we've done, we've covered quite a bit here, but is there anything else you want to make sure to add or that you want people to know? Um, well, I think it all starts in the body. And so later on in my book, I talk about a community, a communication, uh, technique that I came up with. I call it the epic communication style. So one thing that, uh, couples therapists, um, except for Diane Poole Heller, I'm sure there's others, but traditionally most couples therapists never say, oh, by the way, my brilliant communication strategy that I came up for you, uh, it won't work if you're dysregulated in your body. Nothing I just told you will work at all <laughs> if you are really dysregulated in your body. You know, in general, couples therapy and trauma therapy knowledge has run parallel and has not been integrated enough. So epic communication it integrates. So E is emotions, uh, empathizing, uh, empathizing with your partner. P in epic is physical. So that's grounding and grounding can happen before, during, after, all throughout a hard conversation. And you can learn how to ground yourself and you can learn how to ground your partner, right? And that's a whole conversation. I is the intellectual piece, the validating piece. I can understand logically why you're upset because of X, Y, and Z. And then C is last. A lot of times people try and lead with this and then that goes south. It's last. And that is compassion and action where after you've made, if you, after you've helped your partner feel seen and heard for quite some time, empathize and validate them for quite some time, then you can move to finding out how you can compassionately help heal the wound that has occurred in the relationship. So um, that's what I would say is, again, it starts with the body. Any relationship, it starts with your own relationship with your body. And if you had a lot of trauma, a lot of people with trauma are like, what are you talking about? Because they live so in their head. But you can just start off by trying to track for the positive in your body. Somebody makes you laugh. What part of your body knows about that? Somebody gives you a hug that's warm and wanted. What part of your body knows about that? The more you talk to your body, the more your body will light up. If you have a lot of trauma, again, you want to start with the positive because whatever you focus on grows. So when you track for the positive as a starting point, that can expand in your body. When somebody gives you a warm hug and you notice that your heart knows about it, focusing on your heart, guess what? You might notice that yummy, warm feeling expanding and it, now it's getting bigger. You know, sometimes working with the negative, you not, might need a therapist to help guide you with that if you have a lot of trauma. But at the end of the day, having a beautiful relationship where you love yourself well and you love others well starts with the body. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for all of this. And just to finish out, is there any benediction you want to give to our audience? Any blessing or any anything like that? You deserve to be loved well. You deserve to be able to pay attention to your body. Don't let anybody uh, make you push through boundaries in a, in a way that 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 hurts your body. You deserve to be loved and to see love in all of its forms. You can find love in so many forms and it does not have to be just with a partner. Absolutely. Creating deeper, wider networks of care. So we are all held and it isn't just one person's responsibility um, in a monogamous relationship. It is too much to hold for us humans, I think. Um, we do want a, a breadth of relationships. Um, thank you for that reminder. It's always valuable to build networks of care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We've talked about so much here. Um, and I really appreciate uh, what you're offering out into the world, this book and um, pathways into 
different ways that we can be experiencing more love, joy, and connection. Um, and I love that you're talking about how it starts in our own bodies and reflecting on our histories and the information that we get from our own bodies and then being able to build more capacity um, and pathways into love and connection with other people. Thank you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. You know, I, I think you guys have a beautiful podcast where um, just the sound of your voice is, is healing. And you, you guys, the two of you are a gift. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much to Kate Laurie for joining us for this conversation. You'll find a ton of links in the show notes to this podcast episode over at pleasuremechanics.com. We will be back with you next week for another episode of Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. I'm Charlotte from pleasuremechanics.com, wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Pleasure.